I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Vice and Brent 2020, London Borough of Culture, this is Vent Documentaries. Young people from one London borough telling you the stories we care about. This is series one, where we're talking about identity. I'm 18 years old. At the moment, I'm thinking about who I'm about to become, and a lot of that is to do with the NHS. I'm going to become a midwife, and now, especially during COVID-19, everyone is talking about the NHS all the time. Free healthcare, underfunding, and the best things to do for it are more important to everyone, especially me. That's Azhar, one of my best friends. I called her because there's also a very personal reason as to why I'm making this documentary. And I wanted to talk to her about it. Um, it kind of started with my uncle, yeah. who passed away. He was basically waiting for a surgery. What happened was, like, he just didn't make it through. How long was he waiting for the operation? Uh couple months usually the thing about the nhs is kind of like they give you like they will send you a letter but your operation is like three four five months do you get it yeah it's not going to be in a couple weeks it's not going to be in a couple days but then again it's to do with having more healthcare professionals in the system because the more people you have the more you can help out other patients you get it yeah exactly you're you're blaming the system not the staff no of course i'm not blaming the staff i'm more or less blaming the system the system and how they're lacking funding and how they're just not realising if they don't fund the NHS, it's kind of like people are just going to get sick. So now with this documentary that you're going to make, what's like what's the plan? What are you trying to do? In all honesty, I feel like as well as me, like I'm, I'm going to be learning, mm. I just hope that other people get can to listen, listen and can understand where I'm coming from, do you get it? Yeah, and sense. they can educate themselves. It's really difficult when a very personal thing happens to you and you suspect it might be because of maybe a political or structural failing rather than just a tragedy. Stories like this of patients falling through the cracks are unfortunately not singled out to just my uncle. One case that springs to mind is of a lady who suffered poor assessment. That's Dr Bob Gill. He's a GP practising just outside London. So she went along to an urgent care centre. The A&E department had been downgraded to an urgent care centre. She was known to have very poor circulation. That was her past medical history. And she presented to the urgent care centre with severe abdominal pain. 
Now, because the urgent care centre isn't a, a full hospital with an A&E and surgeons and other people on site, the diagnosis that they made was wrong. They told the lady that she needed to go to another hospital and to make her own way there in her own car driven by her husband. She collapsed in her own car, an ambulance had to be called, and then she was taken to an A&E department where there was a further delay before the penny dropped that this lady was suffering from an aneurysm. She then ended up having emergency surgery, which she did very badly from, and she spent months in intensive care, and she eventually died. Had she been seen in a fully functioning A&E by a doctor who had the opportunity to ask a senior doctor his opinion before making the catastrophic decision to send her on her way in her own car, potentially this diagnosis could have been reached early. She had life-saving surgery and recovered well and be here able to tell you her own story. Mm. Seldom will people look back and analyse where did the system fail the system is so busy that these sort of preventable harm and death is occurring on a daily basis and people are not doing an analysis of where the problems stem from because that then points to political policy and the politicians don't want to hear this. I'll never know for sure whether getting his surgery sooner would have saved my uncle's life. But it seems like it's not a totally out there theory. I want to go right back to the basics. Why did the UK get a national health service and how does politics come into play? I brought in another person to help me piece together when things started to change. Hey Ash, how are you doing? I'm really good, how are you? I'm good, thanks. For some people who might not know, who you are and what you do. Can you just quickly give a brief introduction as to what you do? So my name's Ash Sarka. I'm a journalist and a writer and an academic. Ash knows her stuff. Do you mind if we just quickly take it all the way back to the beginning of the NHS and when it was founded? So the NHS really was part of the welfare state and the idea of the welfare state is really mm -hmm. born with the 1942 Beveridge Report, and he identified what he called the five giants. And the five giants which needed to be slain mm -hmm. were idleness, disease, ignorance, want, and squalor. I have no idea what those are. So basically... <laughs> Idleness means worklessness, the okay. idea that you've got huge amounts of people who, because of the effects of the Great Depression, were left without work or a means to sustain themselves. Mm -hmm. Squalor means the quality of housing. So at this time, you still have these huge Victorian era slums where people don't have access to things like indoor bathrooms. You've got disease and want. So just the basic business of poverty. The really massive thing that the Beveridge Report does is mm -hmm. it suggests that the state, the government, has a bigger role than had previously been imagined. And the NHS was a key pillar of the welfare state. Bob Gill. It promised to remove fear from poor people uh, about becoming sick. But people forget to say this is taxpayer funded 
So it's not free, really. But we just don't have to pay when we're sick. I'm down with that, levelling the playing field. But setting up the NHS was massively controversial. So the Conservative Party whipped to vote down the foundation of the NHS multiple times. But finally, in 1948, it happens and there's an NHS for people to rely on. And all of the scaremongering that it's going to immediately collapse because everyone's going to want to use it Mm -hmm. doesn't come to pass. It was copied across the world in Mm -hmm. countries like Israel, Scandinavian countries, Italy, Spain, Portugal. They saw that this model worked. The economy and everybody's prosperity improved because they had reliable health care. In fact, it was such good news to people that the most dramatic thing that happened was the suicide rate went down. People who were sick, who felt that they were a burden on their family before the NHS was announced, were taking you know, the desperate option and committing mm-hmm. suicide. So it took away that worry. Basically, at the beginning, the NHS fucking slayed it. But it's been steadily sliced away ever since the early 80s. British Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher came into power in 1979. And let's just say the welfare state and the idea that the government was responsible for propping up its citizens was not really her thing. Thatcher was more about the private sector and the free market. She said if the government looked after those, then individual citizens' needs would be met like that. Rather than a social safety net, you've got the values of individualism and free markets. So Thatcher sets about deregulating the finance sector and also to take what had been public provision, Mm -hmm. so things like council housing, and take it out of public hands. This had a big effect on the NHS. One of the big hangovers we have from Thatcher is this idea that the public sector and the welfare state is slow, inefficient, crap, can't get Mm -hmm. the job done. And then it means that you've got an excuse as a government to underfund a service so that everyone thinks it's crap. And then you go, oh, look, here's a nice shiny private sector that can do it for you anyway. Between 97 and 2010, when we had New Labour and Tony Blair, he carried on Thatcher's ideas and introduced private finance initiative, which is very expensive loans on top of the NHS. There was so much belief in the private sector and, and the private banks that this was sold to the public as, you know, if, if we let the private sector build the hospitals and finance the hospitals, it would be delivered on time and at much cheaper cost. What private finance has actually achieved is to saddle the NHS with debt. And at the end of that period, we still don't own the hospitals. And then in 2008, when I was six, <laughs> there was a huge financial crisis. After that, the government introduced a set of policies aimed at saving money called austerity. The government steps in and it's pumping huge amounts of money into the banking sector, literally, to keep it alive. The bankers have fucked us. You've got 
huge amounts of mortgage foreclosures. You've got people losing their homes because of this. You've got huge amounts of unemployment. Politically, what you would expect to happen in that case, you would expect the government to go, hang on, maybe we should invest back in infrastructure projects and create work for people, put money into our workforce and keep it circulating. Instead, what you had was an opportunity which was spied by few people who were already at the top of all those sectors, which is, well, actually, why don't we turn this into a story of rather than the banks messed up and that's why the government had to spend so much money, why don't we turn this into a story of public services were too expensive in the first place? Yeah. And that's what austerity is. It's telling that story that money that the government has really if you're sensible should be set aside for propping up the banks it should be for corporate welfare so what's the relationship between austerity and the nhs so while funding has been ring fenced for the nhs because you can't really be seen to say we're going to take billions and billions and pounds out of the NHS, it wasn't keeping up with the increased need for the NHS. So in real terms, you've got a funding cut. You actually have an NHS which is under a tremendous amount of strain because in reality, it's having to do more with less. When you make a country poorer, so you take money out of child protection services, out of sure start centres. You have this massive squeeze on wages. You have a less healthy population overall. So that's another thing which drives up the need for the NHS. And PFI, private Mm -hmm. finance initiatives. Introduced under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. Gets given steroids under the Conservatives. So When we talk about the NHS being privatised, people assume that means that you've got a hand over a 20 before you see your GP. Slightly privatisation is going on all the time. A national health service having to support more patients with less funding, outsourcing services to private companies and gaining more debt. This is what I was worried about. Staff not having the resources and time to care for their own patients in the way that they should. So my uncle inspired me to get involved with this documentary. So he was waiting for a surgery for his heart. A couple months. I don't blame, like, the NHS. I actually blame the government because I was I was obviously heartbroken. Like, who would want to see, like, one of their family members or anyone pass away that you really care about? Over time, you just kind of, like, the more you educate yourself as to what's going on, the more you kind of have an understanding. What? I think we're talking about is that the value of a human life is worth more than a company's profit and the fact is is that because we've been so topsy-turvy in our values for decades now it means that we look at the staffing crisis that the NHS has Mm -hmm. the fact that we're missing doctors and consultants and GPs and nurses and we go can we afford to fix this? When really the question should be, can we afford not to? That's next. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. I'll never really know whether my uncle would have survived if he'd got his operation earlier. But what I do know is that doctors within the NHS feel stretched and under pressure and that privatisation of the NHS is already happening in the UK. I'm really scared of ending up with a system like they have in America. So I decided to call an American. My younger son was two and a half and he was strapped to me in one of those baby carriers. And I tripped over, there was a bollard and I went flying over it and wrapped my arm around his head instinctively to break his fall. And so we hit the pavement with my elbow hitting first and then his skull and my body coming down on top of my elbow and it just shattered. This is Laura Biz. She's a professor of British history based part-time in Washington, D.C., and part-time over here in the UK. I found her because of an article she wrote on CNN comparing the NHS with the American healthcare system. I mean, I broke my radius in half. I shattered my ulna. You know, I went to A&E and they fired up the MRI machine and they turned it off for the night, but they turned it back on and they put me in and they found it was dislocated. And they, you know, managed to really reduce the pain by sorting that out that night. I had amazing surgery. I have a titanium arm now. And I then had follow-up care with physical therapist. And, you know, I pay my national insurance contribution with every paycheck. But I, you know, that was it. There was no billing. There was no crazy hassle. The only information they took from me, you know, was my basic admitting information. Every time I've set foot in a hospital in the U.S., before you even see a doctor, you've completed pages and pages of paperwork about, you know, your insurance, any secondary insurance, anyone else they could go after for fault for the accident. And that's before you even make it out of the waiting room. I asked her what U.S. health insurance is about. I work, as I said, at a private university, and I have employer-provided health care. But that doesn't mean that my employer pays for all of my healthcare bills. Laura explained there's a couple different healthcare policies she can choose from, but they take five to ten percent out of her salary to pay for those policies. And then every time you go to the doctor in the US, regardless of what type of plan you have, there's usually another copay that comes with that doctor's visit. In my case, it's sort of $20 to $40 each time you go. You know, I mean, it's enough to make you think, do I really need to go to the doctor? And that's what it's intended to do. It's intended to kind of discourage people from seeking medical care unless they, they really need it. And it works. People avoid seeking care for a long time. 
As you know, with a lot of diseases, the earlier you catch them, the better your outcome is. It's a serious issue with the American healthcare system. This really hit home for me. Maybe if my uncle had had his operation sooner, he might have pulled through. I can't imagine living in a country which encourages people to avoid going to the doctor until their situations become more life-threatening. So how does the system work in America if you don't have the insurance? I actually am very fortunate in that I not only have insurance, but I have very good insurance. And so when I say I pay 10% of my salary, there are a lot of people who, who do have insurance but who are paying a lot more than that because they don't have a kind of good policy through their employer. Or there are some people who, despite the passage of Obamacare, still pay out of pocket if they get ill. And if you do end up paying out of pocket, you can be looking, particularly if you're hospitalized, at medical bills in the tens of thousands of dollars. And every year in the United States, you do have the uninsured who become unexpectedly ill and who declare bankruptcy because of medical bills. It happens in significant numbers every year. Having lived in the UK too, Laura had an interesting perspective on the NHS. I think that it is a system that does privilege kind of aggressiveness um, and kind of a bulky, you know, pushy attitude. And I think it also does privilege, in some ways, also the people who are better off and better educated. Because I think the better able you are to be an advocate for yourself and the better informed you are within the NHS, the more likely you are to receive care quickly or to get access to certain types of care. And I do think that's where you do see certain inequities that are socioeconomic kind of creeping into the NHS. The NHS should be free at the point of access for everyone in the UK, no matter who they are and where they're from. But some people have a harder time accessing healthcare than others. I spoke to Laura. My name is Laura. Um, I work at Praxis, which is a charity that supports migrants and refugees in London. Well, I kind of got like an Italian vibe from your name. Maybe. <laughs> yes, I'm Italian. If you don't know, I'm Italian as well. <laughs> Literally. Laura told me about a specific set of policies that were put in place in 2012. The hostile environment. The um, stated aim of these sets of policy is to make uh, the UK a hostile environment for undocumented people so they wouldn't want to live here. Right? Yes, yeah, so what do you mean by undocumented? Undocumented means that it's somebody who doesn't have a visa or live to remain. A lot of people wrongly call undocumented migrants illegal people, but no people is illegal. So someone who doesn't have a British passport, basically. Not just that, somebody is like, I don't have a British passport, Neither but I'm I, not yeah. undocumented because um, by virtue of freedom of movement, uh, okay, cool. I can be here. Yeah, right? get it. So it's somebody who doesn't have a British passport and doesn't have leave to remain. Yeah. The hostile environment policies were put in place in the time of austerity, what Ash and Bob were talking about cutting funding to public services with the idea that it was better to prop up the banks after the financial crash. The government said that they were cracking down on undocumented migrants who they said were putting a strain on our services. 
While these policies have been put in place with the aim of making the UK a very hostile environment for people without documents, which in itself is not great, these policies end up affecting a lot of people who do have documents. So how did the hostile environment have an impact on like the NHS? Okay, so the NHS in theory, it's free at point of access, mm-hmm. right, for anybody. There has been an ongoing narrative coming from the government for a while now that there are a lot of what are called um, health tourists, which are people that in theory come from abroad to get the excellent treatment of the NHS for free. Well, this is the how the government justifies the policies mm-hmm. is that they want to stop this from happening. Yeah, they introduce checks at the NHS to check that people coming for treatment have the right to access those treatments. But of course, not everyone gets asked to provide proof that they have the right to free healthcare. NHS staff who also are mostly not trained in immigration law have to make decisions about whose documents to check. It seems like this could quite easily slide into a racial profiling situation. I met a guy called Sylvester Marshall. He had cancer in 2017, but when he went to the hospital to access treatment... I think it was in November. I should get my treatment Uh and they refused it. Why did they refuse it? As far as it goes, because I haven't got any paperwork, passport or paperwork to But you're a British citizen, right? Well, they need to see proof. You know, the lady just speak to me outside in the foyer, like, you know, she not even take me into a private room and... She just spoke to you outside? Yeah, and have a conversation. And she says, well, you know, it's going to cost you like £53,000. Actually, it was £54,000. £54,000. Sylvester moved to the UK from Jamaica in the 70s. He got caught up in the Windrush scandal last year. He was one of the many people whose citizenship was called into question. Laura worked with Sylvester to prove he had the right to free treatment. What happened with the Windrush generation is that there were people who have lived in the UK for decades. They arrived in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s. They were British. They are British. They've always been because the UK was colonising half of the world. And by the law running at that time, citizens of the colonies were British subjects. So those people came to the UK as British citizens. They didn't know that they needed papers. Nobody ever told them, you need a document to show your rights, to Mm -hmm. show what you're entitled to. And so we came to the point where thousands of people didn't have a passport, like physically didn't have a passport, and so they couldn't access services anymore. And so what happened to Sylvester, for example, is that he has lived in the UK since 1973, He got cancer, and when he went to the NHS to get his cancer treatment, all of a sudden he was told, you can't get it because you can't prove that you have the right to get it. And so he was asked to pay £54,000. And they just leave me there to die. I can't even imagine. I think that was the worst (laughs) position of my life, really. I'm starting to think a lot about my future, especially as a midwife. 
I read an investigation by Maternity Action from last year that found that midwives in the UK felt as though they were working for the Home Office and certain pregnant women were delaying accessing help or failing to have scans because they were scared that they might be charged or detained. So does this mean that I have to be like a border guard? You can place that, but I'm not doing that. The thing is, that's not in my roles and responsibility. Human to human being, like, that's not really my priority. I think you're saying essential things, like health professionals, their, their duty is to take care of their patients. Exactly. It's not to stop people from accessing vital services yeah. just because of a piece of paper. And it wouldn't be your duty to check documents mm-hmm. that you might not even be able to understand because immigration law is very complex and what is a valid document today might not be a valid document tomorrow and why on earth would you be required to know that exactly right that's the worst thing could ever happen yeah, yeah. but no one should should have like no one should be treated the way you, sh- you would literally treated no, by the nature like bl- <laughs> sorry <laughs> No, you can say it. I mean, like an animal. <laughs> literally, it's just Sorry sad. About that. <laughs> to be honest with you, I think it was a bit racist. Yeah, just had to be said. Yeah. yeah. I'm a migrant. I came here from Italy. My mom's from Somalia. I feel like I fall into a lot of the categories of people who are often blamed in the media for putting a strain on public services in the UK. But literally, I'm going to be one of the people helping to run those services? To me, it seems pretty unfair. thing to remember, of course, is that when the NHS is founded, Britain's literally going around to the Caribbean, to India, begging people to come over mm-hmm. and staff it. And at the same time, those Immigrants are being demonised by politicians and right-wing papers. So the story that we're living with today Mm -hmm. in terms of the very people who are keeping the economy afloat and are keeping our public services staffed being demonised in the media, that was going on (laughs) decades ago as well. So how was the documentary? What what knowledge did you gain from it? I actually don't know where to begin, but... um, Okay, forget me wanting to become a midwife, yeah? Yeah. I feel like, me as a person, I just deep that having free healthcare is a privilege, like... Yeah, it is. It's something that everyone literally takes for granted. I took it for granted, you know? So it kind of made me acknowledge, like, how important it is and just to not take it for granted. Mm. You're sick, you live here. Yeah. You should get look after. Go when you work, that's what you pay your... Your taxes for. Yeah, it's um, national insurance. Mm-hmm. And I pay a lot, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you think... You should get look after properly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, in all honesty, even though some of the information I received through this whole documentary was a bit, you know... Scary. Scary, a bit... It made me a bit, you know, nervous mm. about it. Even the, during this whole coronavirus. This whole like, coronavirus and every Thursday, Every Thursday, clapping. clap, clap. You I'm need to sorry, put more funding. We'll clap and put more money in their bank. Literally. But it's kind of like, I don't feel like, without me having the resources, how am I going to provide my, the people that I'm caring for the right type of care that they deserve? Exactly. Do you want to do it? Still be a midwife? 
Of course I am. Like, you and all people should know, like, mm. once I put my mind something... You have to do it. I have to do it. Mm. But it's kind of like, I just really hope, once this is over, like, they would understand, like, the NHS needs more resources, it needs more funding, yeah, it needs so. more staff. Mm. I feel like... You're still invested in it. I'm still invested in it, and I, I don't know, I have, like, a little bit of hope that things will change and it will get better. The reason why I got involved in this documentary is because of my uncle who passed away quite recently. Yeah. He was on a waiting list for a surgery. Um, he passed away. So I feel, I'm not trying to say it's the health and social care professionals' fault or the hospitals, but I'm just saying this could have been prevented in my eyes. It's a catastrophe, isn't it? And you, you are inevitably left wondering what could have been. And I, I have patients of mine who are having to wait longer and longer. Money is tight and manpower is not as good as it should be, so uh, we struggle to keep up with demand. Why are you still a doctor? Because, you know, if you take away all the politics and the difficulties, mm-hmm. it boils down to your relationship with other human beings. And... You are an active agent in trying to ease their suffering and help them navigate a system. And, uh, you know, I can't think of anything I'd rather be doing, but I'd rather do it without the baggage that comes with it, the political baggage that Mm -hmm. we're all struggling to, to cope with. Thank you for listening to Venn Documentaries, Amphus. Vent documentaries are produced by Jess Lawson and Arlie Adlington with help from Amelia Gill, Moeed Majid and Kamaya Shea. Our music is from WMP Studios. Vent is a collaboration between Vice and Brent London Borough of Culture 2020. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.